What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. 13th century Muslim mystic and poet Jalal ad-Din Rumi is a popular spiritual icon. His legacy is sustained within the mystical and religious practice of Sufism, particularly through renditions of his poetry, music, and the meditation practice of whirling. In Canada, practices associated with Rumi have become ubiquitous in public spaces, such as museums, art galleries, theater halls, just as they have continued to inform sacred ritual among Sufi communities. The Dervishes of the North, Rumi, Whirling, and the Making of Sufism in Canada, published with University of Toronto Press in 2023, explores what practices associated with Rumi in public and private spaces tell us about Sufism and spirituality, including sacred, cultural, and artistic expressions in the Canadian context. Using Rumi and contemporary expressions of poetry and whirling associated with him, the book captures the lived reality of Sufism through an ethnographic study of communities in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. Drawing from conversations with Sufi leaders, whirling dervishes, and poets, Shobana Xavier explores how Sufism is constructed in Canada, particularly at the nexus of Islamic mysticism, Muslim diaspora, spiritual commodity, popular culture, and universal spirituality. In our conversation, we discuss the history of the Sufi communities in Canada, Rumi's rise in popularity in North America, the public performance versus the ritual practice of whirling, poetic remembrance ceremonies, the commemoration of the death anniversary of Rumi, gender dynamics in Sufi rituals, women's positions of authority, the appropriation and commodification of Rumi, and future directions in the study of Sufism in Canada. The book is also available as an open access title, which which can be downloaded from the show notes included. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Now here's my conversation with Shobana Xavier about her wonderful new book, The Dervishes of the North. Hey, Shobana, welcome. Thanks for joining me uh, to talk about your wonderful new book, Dervishes of the North. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to, I mean, of course, see you and talk to you because you're a good friend, but also happy to to be on the, the episode on the other side as a guest. Yes. Don't tell them that, though, because it might seem like I'm privileging you as a guest, <laughs> putting putting you on because we're friends. But uh, because you are so prolific on uh, new books in Islamic studies, a uh, few regular listeners will need uh, an introduction. Um, but uh, perhaps perhaps those listeners aren't even familiar with your your research. Um, and you are uh, an outstanding scholar. you've you've published a whole lot of really cool stuff. Um, and it, uh, it it's all kind of this in the same constellation of this book. So maybe just as a way of introducing yourself, you could uh, talk a little bit about maybe how this book kind of uh, began for you as I need to to write this particular uh, 
project as a book and how it kind of fits into your your previous scholarship. I'm, I'm assuming there's a pretty close relationship. Thank you for your generous comments um, and thanks for the opportunity to reflect on this as well. Um, you're right. So this book really kind of fits in this bigger orbit that I kind of exist in, I think, or move around in, um, which is thinking a lot about contemporary Sufism um, and thinking a lot about it in, I guess, the global north or the North American context. That's what my training in my PhD was. Um, and I worked on the Bawa Muhaideen Fellowship, which was my dissertation project and first book. Um, and this seems like a nice continuation of a similar process, which is examining a Sufi community or suites of Sufi communities that are existing in, you know, the North American context here, specifically Canadian context, and really examining their, their ritual practices, maybe institutional makeups, demographics. Um, I really like kind of mapping. I have a tendency to map. Um, so sometimes I gravitate towards sacred spaces, um, mapping practices. And so in that sense, I'm a religious studies scholar um, who's really thinking a lot about, you know, what is contemporary Sufism, both from an academic perspective, like how are academics studying about it and naming it and talking about Sufism in North America, Sufism in Canada, and some are maybe problematic framings around it. Um, but because I'm also an ethnographer, I tend to think of those questions on the ground, like in the field. And so I go talk to people and talk to Sufis who identify as such and ask them their questions of what is Sufism. So in that sense, in terms of my projects, that's what I've been doing um, in my scholarship so far. And so this book fits nicely into it. Um, the particularity of this book is that it focuses on Canada. Um, so this is the first book on Canadian Sufism. Um, and it, I, it doesn't, I don't say that to say that it's a comprehensive book, but rather I hope more people will continue to explore Canadian Sufism or be geographically specific, like looking about Sufism, thinking about Sufism in Mexico or Brazil, right? Like, let's not lump it all into a category of North America as it kind of was or the, the West. Um, and then secondly, the focus or kind of another um, particularity of the book is that I'm using Rumi kind of as a prism to locate some Sufi communities. So I'm not suggesting that Rumi-based Sufi communities are the only ones that exist. In fact, there's many different Sufi communities, but Rumi kind of gave me um, a, a, a focus to narrow the project down. And so then I use Rumi um, as um, kind of a prism to think about how Sufi communities in the Canadian context are doing Sufism essentially. Yeah, it's and it's a really cool project because you do both bring in this kind of ethnographic work and and kind of this de detailed description from from your interlocutors, uh, but you also kind of provide this kind of historical uh, plotting of these communities and where they came from and how they developed, um, which it, it, so it makes it difficult to. to decide where to start with uh, kind of asking about um, some of the the broader issues because um, we could go in both directions, but per perhaps you could talk a little bit about um, just the, the broader study of contemporary Sufism in the global West. You're kind of uh, gesturing towards this already, and this is kind of uh, one of the, the threads that's through the book, right? How do we kind of disrupt this a little bit. So maybe, maybe for people who aren't familiar with this um, subfield, because I think of you as the expert or at least one of the the key scholars I want to talk to when I'm thinking about Sufism in, in the so-called West, uh, what would you say are some of the challenges or uh, trends or assumptions um, in this kind of approach to Sufism in the West uh, that you tackle when you're talking about Sufism in Canada? I think one of the things that I'm really trying to unsettle or get people to pause around is that there's actually Sufism in the West. And then I think second is that we need to move away from this conversation about whether it's legitimate expression of Sufism or Islam or not. I think early scholarship, um, you know, wonderful scholars like Gisela Webb, Marcia Hermanson, who have also kind of defined this field in many ways, um, you know, thought a lot about this. And when they were thinking about Sufism in the West, they were also thinking about Western Europe and also thinking about United States, 
tended to be um, American centric as well. And as a result of that, when people think about Sufism existing outside, quote unquote, traditional Muslim world, whatever that means, I think there was a tendency to think that, oh, this cannot be a legitimate form of Sufism or legitimate expression of Islam. And part of that also came with the people who were doing the Sufism or attracted to these communities. Um, and often at time, the first kind of wave of folks who are interested in these communities were non-Muslims themselves. So this big question comes up of what is Sufism and how should it be practiced? But a lot of those questions are really around um, defining and setting boundaries around who is doing it right and who's not doing it right. Um, and I, I think I came into the field at a time where people were like deeply invested in these conversations. But one of the things, one of the ways I responded to was instead of trying to answer that question as a scholar, which I don't think I should answer it as a scholar, you know, kind of gatekeeping, I went to the people who were doing the Sufism and started asking themselves, and this is what I did with the Baal Muhaydin Fellowship, and this is what I'm doing in this book, is asking them actually, what do you understand as Sufism? What are you doing? What are the boundaries that perhaps that you are making? And I take that information and I bring it back. And I, what I do in the book is also, as you say, I have a tendency to go back to the historical, not because I'm a historic historian or an expert in kind of classical Islam. I definitely am not. And perhaps that's not, um, that's like a risky thing to do as a scholar. But for me, I, I do it as like an intellectual project or a mapping process to say, actually, some of the questions that people are considering or engaging or debating within the contemporary context are quite similar to um you know, issues that pre-modern scholars that we tend to privilege in Islamic studies were also kind of contending with. It's that they were trying to establish boundaries, trying to say this is where this becomes maybe um, not Sufism or this is where be this becomes a bit blasphemous or heterodox. And so I think for me, the move to use the historical and the contemporary and bring them into conversation is purely just that as like a theoretical, as an intellectual exercise to show people and Shahab Ahmed and many other brilliant scholars have done this is to show that actually capital T tradition has never been um, permanent, right? It's always moved and it's moved based on mobilities, geographies, you know, actually capitalist economies. Um, and so I want people to perhaps be a little bit more relaxed and take the the things that are happening perhaps in Western Europe, in the United States, in Canada, a bit more seriously, because if we don't, then we're also kind of negating, there's like a long historical process that led to this moment. We're also negating a, the experiences of a lot of people on the ground who are doing this thing. And one of the things I say in the book is that um, because of where we are as a global society, we're not only dealing with perhaps the 60s generation of individuals who came to Sufism, who perhaps are not Muslims, and we often uh, homogenize as white racially, we're also now dealing with a generation of people who have moved to the global north, uh, who are members of diasporic Muslim communities, who are also participating in these Sufi communities that perhaps look a little bit um, fluid, or as we'd say, universal. And, and so it's quite messy out there, or at least this is what I found in my fieldwork. And so this is what I hope I'm contributing to this kind of subfield of Sufism in the West, is that we we pause and, and settle some of our assumptions, and then think really about, well, what is the relationship to Sufism, to Islam, both in the present moment, but what was it like historically? And in both cases, they were not set Right. And I think I want us to perhaps dwell in that space that actually it's quite messy. Hmm. Um, there's a lot more we could say uh, in relation to this uh, subfield that you are a trailblazer, an architect. We might even want to call you one of the founding mothers of this subfield uh, of Sufism in Canada um, and how it fits into you know, all these kind of related fields of Sufism in the West or Muslims in Canada or popu popular spirituality or even, even kind of uh, immigration and diaspora studies, as you just kind of mentioned, becomes a, a key part of it. Um, when for, for this book, right, you're not trying to set out the history here. 
um, and you look at the uh, very particular places and very particular um, communities um, in that kind of uh, lived experience. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the field work that you did, uh, some of the locations and communities you were at, and even some of these specific maybe ritual spaces or sites that you were at? So since it is a Canada-specific book, um, this is kind of a particularity, and I hope, I mean, folks could Google um, some of these places, but I think um, the big cities are what I focused on. So Toronto, I spent the most time in, and this was partly just practical because I've from Toronto, I grew up in Toronto um, and I had the most connections to Sufi communities in Toronto. So I started in Toronto and used Toronto as, um, I, and I didn't think that in my research, I would go to other cities. I kind of, even in my mind, I kind of narrowly focused on Toronto as a city of interest. But when I started interviewing, particularly whirling dervishes or Samazans who are turners, um, who I would meet at these public ceremonies. So maybe they presented at museums like the Aga Khan Museum or universities. Um, I, you know, I knew them. And so then these same individuals, these presenters or performers in public spaces also had private, privately um, communities that they were part of and private in the sense that it was like, you come and you meet on a Friday or a, usually a Sunday um, and you do the practice and you teach, right? So it's less performative and more like experiential. So I started following those communities in Toronto, um, and then I soon found out that those individuals who were Samazans in Toronto had connections to people in Montreal. Um, so this is in, in Quebec, the province of Quebec, and then went back also to Vancouver, to British Columbia. So regionally, I'm kind of dealing with a little bit of the Canadian West Coast, and then also kind of central or south central um, Toronto, which is connecting also to more like New York Um in that context, like upstate. So there were kind of lots of flow, flows between the, the American communities, but um, these communities were emerging mainly from these cities. And I spent time with both their communities in smaller spaces where you do the practice, the turning. And this turning is very important for the Mevlavi tradition, which is associated with Jalaluddin Rumi. So this is something, a practice that emerged as a legacy of his. Um, and included the use of music, um, Turkish music, um, and because Canada is, a, is some of the communities were quite eclectic, as was like whoever musician was there kind of contributed their their the expertise in some ways, and then also poetry as well. So this is where Rumi's poetry would come in, and so this kind of defines some of the spaces that I was participating in, and some of the spaces that I talk most about. In chapter two of the book, I do kind of a broader historical setting up of more Sufi communities. Um, the project didn't start off just focusing on these communities. I kind of, as you do as an ethnographer, you go into the field and you try to gather broadly as much as possible. Then you can kind of come back after you've done the data collection and you sit with and you start coding. So in the gathering process, I kind of just went out and talked to as many Sufis as I could. So not all of that research ends up being the focus of this book. As I was doing the data coding, it's it started, for me at least, the data started speaking to me that I had an angle in terms of Rumi-based communities who were doing a lot of the turning practices. And I was seeing a lot of that in um, the performance spaces. And I think a lot of that was also mapping on quite nicely not nicely, but I was aligning with some of the conversations that were people were having on social media about um, people, you know, appropriating Rumi. And some of this also came up in a book that I had co-authored with my supervisor, um, Dr. Mina Sherfi Funk, and my colleague, William Rory Dixon. So there was a few kind of things that were circulating. And also, you and Hussein at, for your um, Muslims and pop culture invited me to contribute a chapter on Rumi as well. So there were a few moments where, you know, I was kind of being pulled towards Rumi. And I think that also influenced um, when I started seeing some of this data in my own research, I was like, oh, maybe there's an angle here. And I think that ended up being the focus. So focusing on Sama, the, the turning practice, focusing on poetry, and then ultimately focusing on Rumi-based communities. And these were both communities that originated in Canada. So in Vancouver, Rashad Field, who was a British teacher, came 
and, and he started teaching some people in Vancouver in the, um, in the 70s. And then I also talk about how in kind of the 90s and post 90s, when we had a wave of immigrants coming to Canada, you have an increase in diasporic Muslim communities as well. So today, these communities are not merely what I think scholarship historically would have viewed them as, oh, this is purely, you know, white, non-Muslim group of people doing the practice, but often the communities that I was circulating amongst, and I was participating in terms of these rituals, were mixed of both Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, and you could read that as racially coded, or you could read that as um, kind of conversion, right? So it's like a mixed hodgepodge. And I wanted to make sure that I emphasize that. And so it's part of the reason the book is quite focused on a lot of these ethnographic details because they wanted to paint a picture to people versus what they kind of have a stereotype in their mind about. Yeah, and uh, I'll just mention that uh, in the second chapter, you do kind of lay out a more kind of historical um, kind of narrative about uh, early communities uh, in Canada. But um, the the Rumi-based ones... Um, become the central focus um so i'm i'm wondering if we can jump to that these this practices of sama in sufi communities in canada and uh you in this chapter you do kind of jump back to what we might think of as the kind of classical period of of sufism um so maybe you could briefly tell us what classical definitions of sama might be um but then uh move to you know, what the ritual expression of Sama looks like in Canada. And, um, you know, let us know why you think the these practices are the ones that are becoming popular in this in this context. Mm. Yeah, this is really interesting for me to explore again, because I'm not a historian. I spent quite a bit of time trying to get access to as much of these kind of historical, some of them are Ottoman texts um, or scholars who do more work on um, early Sufism and also um, Orientalists who had gone to for you know in the were traveling the Ottoman Empire and had kind of these colonial archives where they wrote about um, whirlers that they had encountered. So I use a mix of these kind of sources to set out um, you know how this practice of turning was really talked about and written about. Um, and ethnomusicologists were really useful in this process. So in the beginning, what I did was in this chapter, in chapter three, and I could go back to scholars like Al-Ghazali, for instance, the kind of the classical Sunni theologian that a lot of people tend to, to like or give a lot of uh, clout to. Um, and he, for instance, was somebody who's quite critical of, you know, using music and really critical of anybody who responded to, um, you know, were participating in these kind of spaces and responded with ecstasy or wedged. And so here's a figure that himself was a proponent of Sufism in the in the mode of kind of interior practice, but was cautioning in his writings kind of what you know music shouldn't be something that's utilized um, in terms of sound. And also one is in these spaces and one is provoked by a feeling or in you know welcome to a state. Um, one can respond, but once one becomes self-aware, one should come back to their normal state of kind of, um, you know, regaining control of the self, right? So these are some of, this is an example of a figure that I used to see, well, what did he say about it? What was he saying about what are the ways in which proper, let's say, zikr, so the remembrance of God, reciting the names of God in various litanies, how can it how can it unfold? Is music allowed or not allowed? Is movement allowed or not allowed? And there's a lot of kind of rich discussions about this. And I lay some of this out. I'm not quite thorough in it. Um, but all this to say is none of this was kind of accepted. None of this was easy because there was a lot of contradictory kind of responses, right? In terms of the place of music and the place of movement. Um, but despite the fact that we know this, other scholars also document kind of the other end, kind of these calendar figures who are quite radical in their expressions and quite radical in their expressions of ecstasy in kind of these moments, these heights of spiritual practices of remembering God's 
God's names or reacted to music, that they were kind of totally in trance as well, right? So you have a really broad spectrum of responses to the place of music, the place of poetry, and the place of bodily responses to these practices, but all with the core goal of, well, what are you doing when the goal is that one is remembering the name of God? And so I think this debate around music, this debate about musical um bodily musical responses is something that I'm setting out. But at the same time, one of the other reasons I'm using Orientalist writing is to highlight how, you know, the whirling dervishes who are classically were often, you know, um, the interest of travelers um, in the Ottoman Empire, people were drying their long skirts, drawing these dervishes in trance-like states. And so there is at this kind of, you know, um, pre- pre-modern time, we're also getting this interest in these dervishes as these popular figures, right? So, um, and people are attracted to kind of Turkish music, particularly the ney. They're attracted to this, you know, the practice, the Mevlavi Sema, which is quite ritual. There's a lot of steps that one needs to follow and people who are traveling are writing about them. So I wanted to map both of these on to kind of say, well, you have these debates within amongst, you know, Sunni scholars, namely, about the place of some of these ritual practices, but you also have kind of the allure that is emerging in the popular imagination from Orientalist writers who are drawn to this practice of Samam. And of course, a lot of this also goes through what happens with the end of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of the Republic of, of Turkey and the secularization project of Turkey. Some scholars do contend that because Sufism was ultimately banned kind of the mid 20th century um, in Turkey, you have kind of the, uh, a lot of Sufi communities that are going underground. And so there is a case made by some scholars that this is also part of the reason you have the practice of some kind of going underground, but also becoming more redefined as a cultural practice and less as a ritual practice as a kind of a state co-option. And also the reason in which that it becomes presented to the rest of the world as kind of a a cultural practice. So you see UNESCO taking it up and, you know, whirling dervishes that are traveling around the world performing in places like Paris and present performing at theater halls. So there's this ongoing tension inherently that I think I'm trying to unpack in um, chapter three at the beginning. And I'm also continuing this thread and suggesting that this ongoing uh, tension is not inherent, let's say, amongst scholars who are debating the permissibility of music and movement for meditation um, in Muslim communities, but also this broader issue that I think a lot of ethnomusicologists perhaps are participating in with this, like, is this sacred music or is this performative and but what are the lines? And I draw this thread in to see, well, how are Sufi communities in Canada and Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver are participating in these practices and are actually presenting these practices in public spaces. How are they framing these, right? Is there kind of a continuity? Are there disruptions in the transmission process? Yeah, and what did you find within the within the Canadian communities? In the Canadian communities in Toronto, I think what's interesting is that it's it's that the practice is so prevalent. And I I say in the book that more than Western Europe and more than the United States, it's interesting that in Canada, particularly in Toronto, and I think it goes back to Rashad Fields community that um, is tied to Suleiman Loris and um, his son Jalal Dean, the community that's based in Vancouver. This community really focused on uh, turning and there's a figure by the name of uh, Brian Rakeep Burke who was taught by Suleiman Loras, and he then subsequently taught what I frame in this book as the, the second generation of rolling dervishes, and they're now training the next generation, the third generation of Mablavi, like whirling dervishes. Um, and they don't necessarily identify as Mablavi, but they do understand their practice as, you know, Sama going back to Bunivia, you know, Turkey. Um, In Vancouver, for instance, uh, they are a community that have held the Shabia Rus, which is a death anniversary celebration for Rumi that takes place on December 17th, um, which has resulted in a huge global tourism of, you know, uh, people going to Konya at that time, right? It's, It's something that Turkey is advertising and people go to Konya where Rumi is buried to see his, his, his tomb and participate in the Mevlavi Sama there at this big hall. 
Um, in Vancouver, they've been holding a version of this practice for 40 years nonstop, uh, continuously. Um, and this is a community that has, it's very, you know, religiously plural, pluralistic. You have generation of folks who have been practicing Sufism from the 60s and 70s, and they trace back their practice to Suleiman Loris, who some understand is, um, there's debates about his um, official relationship to the Mevlavi order, but there's kind of connections to Rumi through him as well. And so that's the transmission that they use. And so this community now has students who are teaching and so and teaching this practice particularly. And so in any given time in December, you'll find um, Sufi communities hosting the remembrance of you know, Rumi's death anniversary sometime in December. And a central component of it is the practice of turning um, music and also poetry and zikr. Um, this happens in Toronto, this happens in Montreal, this happens in Vancouver. Um, and so it is really fascinating. And, and it's also two other communities I look at. The Jirahi community who's also based in Toronto and the Rafais all do this. So there's a su suite of Sufi communities in the Canadian context who are continuing these practices that are also held in, in let's say, Konyang. And for turning to be something that I'm mapping generationally, so now I'm saying that there's a third generation of rolling dervishes who are really committed to this practice and who are, you know, meeting up for retreats, who are really focused on this practice. I think there is a sense of continuity, which is really, really fascinating to me. Um, people are sometimes suspect of it. And I, this is what I turned to in chapter four and kind of looking at the performative dimensions of it, but in the private ceremonies, and I lose, I use private here loosely just to demarcate a difference between these kind of performances that are taking place in big theaters versus these I'm talking about are taking place in a small, you know, rental spaces, dance studios where there's about 50 people and, and they're turning all night or there's um, retreats that are held in different, you know, retreat centers over the, the year, essentially, where people gather just to focus on the practice of turning. Um, and so the teachers who are the whirling dervishes will teach you how to hold your posture. There's exercises that are associated with it. So you would spend an entire weekend, for instance, with a community or a teacher just learning the practice of the hand positions. Um, there's musicians who are involved and you're studying poetry. So I think there's this deep commitment for the community that I studied who are really focused on this turning practice, right? Um, and I think that is defining their expressions of Sufism. Um. Another central thread here that you kind of uh, tackle head on in the fourth chapter is um, Rumi's legacy in the contemporary world. Um, and you've mentioned you kind of uh, address this in a couple different places in your in your scholarship. Um, but perhaps you could kind of just give us a brief rundown, um, which you, you provide some of it in the book, of how Rumi became so popular uh, in general uh, in the so-called West. So this is the chapter that I think that I really needed to get out of my system. <laughs> and <so> when, I, <laughs> when I, when I was like, when, you know, you have some distance from the book, I was like, oh, this is what I needed to write. <laughs> um, I, so in some ways I think it felt very therapeutic because I think this is the, this is the big topic, right? I think all of this, fortunately, unfortunately is leading to this, like one big topic that people have this question about is kind of, Rumi and the place of Rumi. Um, and so, and for your edited volume as well, I think it was an opportunity to start kind of processing and thinking about it. Um, so I think the big question here is like, what has happened with Rumi? And I think I, I've done uh, this job in various um, kind of uh, spaces, academic spaces, um, but also in my courses, I teach a course on religion and popular culture, where we kind of really think through how did Rumi become so popular? Um, and I kind of date this back to, you know, the colonial context when there was encounter between individuals, let's say colonial administrators to language of Persian. Um, again, as I mentioned, a lot of individuals who are traveling through places like the under the Ottoman Empire and encountering Sufi poetry, um, and who are being introduced in some ways to, let's say, Hafez or Saudi or these other individuals. Um, 
And this process of encounter becomes quite transformative, but it, it's a process of encounter that unfolds primarily through Persian. And I think, you know, that is important because that continues kind of this imagination or further reforms this imagination that Sufism is not part of Islam um, because of this linguistic difference, because people would associate Islam with Arabic um, and Sufism with Persian, right? So here you see kind of this moment in which there's this uh, bifurcation between Islam and Sufism, and Sufism gets associated with poetry and far, you know, Persian and this kind of fluidity and uh, allure of the dervishes. All these things become exoticized, uh, particularly during colonial encounter, and Islam becomes kind of framed as this legalistic, rigid Arabic. Um, associated with this Prophet Muhammad that people had really kind of problematic assumptions about, particularly when they compared prophecy to a figure like Jesus, right? And so in this moment, then I think people are encountering Persian poetry. Um, and in the early periods, actually, it was Hafez who was far more popular, right? He was the one who was attractive. He was the one whose poetry was being kind of translated and piecemeal and circulating across even the Atlantic, influencing individuals in the transcendentalist movement and in the European context, influencing poets who are part of the Romantic Society. So this is a long process, right? And a lot of brilliant scholars have written about it. And I encourage listeners who are interested to kind of pursue this further. Um, so I kind of understand Rumi as part of this um, lineage of transmission. I think he's the latest. And in some ways, I think in our in, in our time, it feels like a novelty, but he's quite popular, right? Um, Hafez, for instance, um, it, sorry, Omar Khayyam, for instance, is another poet, Persian poet, who was quite uh, popular in the American context. And there were chocolate bars that were used to sell uh, with his name on it and tobacco. So there's been these historical moments where similar kind of consumption and commodification commodification practices have emerged around these figures. Um, but I think um, with Rumi, we're seeing it more in real time now. And I think a lot also has to do with the figure of um, Coleman Barks, um, this American, uh, you know, professor, English professor, a poet himself. And a lot of his I would say renditions or interpretations of Rumi, which he accessed through other translations. So he didn't do the translating himself, but he used other people's translations like A.J. Arbery and these other um, scholars. And kind of, he felt that those were maybe like a bit translations that were too stuck or were not as accessible. So he interpreted his process as Americanizing or vernacularizing the poetry of Rumi. Um, and in the 1990s, and you know, in the West Coast in California, like he would sell self-published versions of his interpretations of Rumi, which became the most popular ones, and to this day remain kind of the most popular ones, right? Um, and so you have a lot of uh you know, Hollywood stars in the American West buying into it, Rumi, um, Beyonce, Brad Pitt, all this stuff. And so there's like a growth of interest in Rumi. And we see this a lot on social media. This is where a lot of the critique comes from. And I think I use all of this really to kind of think through this issue of cultural appropriation. Um, and in the book, I use philosophers to kind of think about well, what is cultural appropriation and what are people really upset about? And um, Amanda Lucia does a lot of this kind of interesting work also with yoga. Um, and there's, you know, indigenous practices that are also appropriated by non-indigenous people. So I'm placing this conversation around cultural appropriation is not unique to Rumi, but I'm understanding this is kind of comparable to other situations that are taking place. Um, and then I'm trying to understand uh, well, what's the issue here? And instead of trying to, you know, wade through this messy ethical dilemma, which I don't think there's an easy answer to, again, I pivot back in the sense of returning to my interlocutors and understanding what it is that they're doing, um, their own practices, because they're not only practicing and the, you know, turning, for instance, or reciting Rumi's poetry in their own private spaces, ritual gathering spaces, they're also the ones who are performing and they're also in their performances are the ones that are getting backlash for going out there and putting kind of further popularizing Rumi and making it more accessible to people than it shouldn't be because how can you go turn in front of an audience when maybe eight out of ten people in the audience don't know exactly what you're doing and the sacredness of what you're doing 
And so in my conversations with my interlocutors, individuals like Farzad, individuals like Tawhida, I asked them, well, you know, why are you going and presenting on stages, right? What is, why do that? And for them, it says, you know, there is a performative dimension of this practice and that's okay. But it often always comes down to what is your intention? If your intention is to give people, as you would say, taste, and the idea of taste in Sufism is really important because you're giving people just a tiny taste of the potential. Um, and if they're interested, they could pursue it further. They could you know, learn the practice more. They could learn more about Rumi. And I ask the same with poets, right? Um, Shanice Jan Muhammad, why are you, you know, what's, is something lost in the fact that people are just able to access these, you know, Rumi's words, or if you are yourself co-opting Rumi in some ways and say, no, again, you're allowing people, there's a need out there, people are interested in this. Um, so you're giving the opportunity to be exposed to it. Um, and I think part of the thing that I'm also kind of pushing here is that the people who are doing the producing in, in you know, in this context are also Muslims themselves. And I wonder if that changes the argument to some capacity. I think we have a narrow perception that commodification really just takes place by people who are outside the community. Um, and it's true, it does to some capacity, right? And those are the ones who are extracting and taking money and gaining the capital, social capital, all that stuff. But what happens when people who are within the community, you know, perhaps people, if you want to play this argument, the legitimate access to these things, are also producing and consuming. Like, does that make a difference, right? And I think this, again, allows us to step back and say, well, historically, of course, we have to think of Islam and Sufism in these broad strokes. It didn't only exist in this kind of siloed, compartmentalized, purified way, but Sufism had pre uh, permeated popular culture. You know, we saw this with Kavali practices with Nasrud Fatah Ali Khan, right? So I'm just, again, I don't know that I necessarily provide a clear-cut answer, but I am very kind of wanting to show the messiness of it all and the people who are doing the consuming and the production and also highlighting the fact that Muslims are also part of the process as well. Yeah, yeah it is tricky. I think you do a good uh, job in this chapter of kind of showing both that kind of historical legacy, but also how it's kind of taking shape in new spaces and ways. And um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> Rumi in the contemporary world. It's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, go I ahead. think people will be debating and I think people should. I think people should have more conversations about this. I'm not claiming anything, you know what I mean? But I, I hope this chapter is more an opening and invitation for people to at least think about it seriously and have a conversation without at least just dismissing it and saying it's not worth talking about. Yeah. Um, in the final chapter, you you move towards uh, gender dynamics in Sufi rituals and um, women's positions in uh, authority. Um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what might have been the historical patterns towards these types of gender dynamics in Sufism from perhaps the medieval or the classical period, you kind of point to some of those in the chapter. Um, but then really, uh, how, how do they play out uh, in the Canadian context you study? So uh, women's authority has been something that I has another thread in my scholarship and something that I'm really, really interested in. Um, and I think part of the reason my interest has emerged in this topic is because when you're an ethnographer and you're going into these spaces, so much of your identity is informed kind of the ethnographic work you do. And I remember as a PhD student, I didn't really think too much of it. I just thought, well, I'm going into studying with the Sufi community I'm going to spend time with. But all of a sudden you start realizing there are gendered spaces. There are certain spaces that um, as a woman I couldn't access. And then I realized that that was informing the kind of data that I could access and the type of story that I could tell as a scholar. Um, and I'm sure this is the dynamic for, um, or the experiences of many ethnographers with their varied complicated identities. We all come with varied identities. It's, um, and so it in, impacts the way that we could access things on the ground. Um, and so because I, as a researcher, was finding gender something that was used against me in terms of access, this has been a thing that I've started thinking seriously about. Um, and so within something that I like went to the field looking for, but interestingly enough, it's been one of the themes that have continued in my scholarship. Um, and so I think returning to that is what has also meant me having a chapter on it, because it continues to kind of 
um, poke at my brain and I'm processing continually. And so in my thinking of Sufi women, one of the things I try to do in this chapter, and I've done in some other kind of publications as well, is to highlight how kind of a complicated position Sufi women have. Um, and it's hard to use the archives or the historical documents when, you know, as scholars have noted that this has been written by men, right? And a particular type of men, elite men, right? Not just everyday men. Um, and so how do we decipher placement of women or the way that women were thought when we're reading it through the lens of, of men? And, you know, scholars like Rukhaya Cornell, who've done really amazing scholarship on Rabiul Adawiya, who's a proto, like a Sufi, proto-Sufi, someone who's a precursor to the tradition of Sufism. We often talk, she talks about how the idea, the myth of Rabi has really kind of been given to us, um, you know, transmitted to us through these other people's versions. It's really always kind of difficult to know um, the placement of women. We have very limited writings of women, um, but we know that they existed. And then they know, we know that they negotiated their position sometimes that they had a husband or a father who was a Sufi teacher that allowed them some clout to move around, right? Um, and so in kind of classical Sufi traditions, one of the things that I tend to think about um, is that you have scholarship on women as like beings that are social in the world, but you also have this idea of the feminine in metaphysical traditions where the feminine is really, really venerated. And so you see this with figures like Mary, the the mother of Jesus or Isa, Mariam, um, you see this with Fatima, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter. So you see this with kind of certain figures who are considered exemplary and to be venerated, right? But it's this idea that they're really, really set apart. And so the feminine becomes like really complicated in that there's different variations of it. There is the metaphysical ideal that all of us, you know, you know, Rumi even does this and um, some other Sufis, um, you see some of this with like Attar, um, Faridin Attar, who's another uh, poet, um, the author of Conference of the Birds. They play with the idea of feminine, but they're not always playing with feminine as if in the female person, they're playing with this idea of the feminine, right? Um, and that is set against the masculine. So it becomes quite complicated in terms of, well, wait, what was women's position? What was their social position, right? So you, I often have to tell folks that, okay, well, there's the ideal position that maybe we all need to um, master our masculine and feminine tendencies that are in internal to us. And we need to all become aspire to, to be the feminine but that doesn't mean that the aspiration is to be all of us women but maybe it is right and so this is kind of the the digging and work that one is doing to decipher well what is kind of the meaning of these things and from different writings especially on hagiographies of women you kind of have to sift through and kind of understand well knowing that we know this is written from a perspective of a male author what can we kind of extract from this material to understand women's position and then scholars like Rukhaya Cornell do this really well. well. Um, and Sadia Sheikh as well has done this with Ibn al-Arabi's writings about masculine and feminine particularly. But in, in kind of understanding this broader cosmology, then we also have to start thinking, about, well, what did it mean for women's social position? And in fact, this kind of, you know, metaphysics around women sometimes was advantageous to Sufi women and sometimes it wasn't. So it wasn't like we can't say it was all so much better because that also becomes a little bit complicated in terms of saying Sufi women fared better than non-Sufi women in Islam because then we're suggesting certain things about Islam as well, which, which I'm really cautious about in my scholarship. So all this to say is that there's kind of a complicated classical tradition. Even Rumi himself and his poetry contained these right he sometimes is really good about thinking about women and he used them as tropes in his poetry especially mary and the idea of the ideal feminine but he sometimes was not very nice and some of the things he wrote in his poetry could perhaps be understood as misogynistic or demeaning to the idea of woman as a social person right and so i want to kind of i highlight that these complexities are contained in the singular and we don't want to kind of erase or flatten them because then otherwise we're kind of losing the um the granular details of the situation here ultimately right um so using this i kind of set up the fact that 
well, this also translates into ritual practices. Like, can women be in mixed genders context or are there going to be gender segregated spaces for some of these gatherings, for some mass spaces? Another big question was, can women turn, right? Um, most people think that Rumi did allow, or, you know, Rumi's sons or the tradition of the Mevlavi practice in Turkey did allow for women turning, but other people said that it was only a practice in the context of all women's circles and not in mixed gendered context, right? So there's this kind of broader question of access of women and can women be in the same spaces? Can women do the same practices? Um, and so this is what I was kind of navigating. And, and in the process, and I talked to different Sufi teachers, um, for instance, the Jirahi community, when they gather for zikr and are participating in Sama, men and women sit separately and only men participate. In another community, I looked at the Rafai. Um, it was completely mixed gendered. They're a queer affirming space um, and everybody participated and men and women were rolling dervishes. Um, Tawira Tanya Evanson is a whirling dervish that I look at in Montreal. Um, she's one of the uh, very gifted whirling, uh, whirling dervishes, and she has performed in many contexts, and she has her own community in Montreal that she leads. So it's her community. She teaches, right? And in many respects, she is a teacher, right? Um, and so it is for this reason that I end this chapter and really the book on stories of two Sufi women, Simi Ghazi, who is in uh, Vancouver, part of Rumi Society, and um, Aida Hussein, who is just outside Toronto and is part of the Inyati Order. Um, both these teachers have relationships with Rumi-based communities to some degree. Um, Aida Hussein, for instance, at the um, Ismaili Center in one of the huge gatherings for Rumi's birthday ceremonies in a packed room led, you know, a zikr and held the, the whirling dervish space. And, and for me at the time, it was the first time I saw a woman in that position leading in such a big public ceremony. So it's part of the reason that I interviewed her and asked her about it, right? So I really wanted to, um, again, complicate the historical, complicate kind of the some of the ways in which gender is perceived in, in terms of ritual access and also authority, um, positions of authority, and end the book really on these two Sufi women, Muslim Sufi women, who are part of really universal Sufi communities. And one of the interesting things that came up in both of their my conversations with them is that you know, they're Sunni Muslims um, and they, this is their inherited identity. These are the communities that they're part of. But interestingly, they're part of communities like Rumi Canada or the Inyati Order that most people, even scholars, would understand as universal Sufi communities. Universal in the sense that they're not communities that perhaps being a Muslim is a requirement to be part of the community. So because they're part of these universal communities, one of the things that happens both in our scholarship, but also amongst other Sufi communities is that dismiss them. We say, well, they're not really real Sufi communities. And this goes back to kind of what we started our conversation with. And when we dismiss them and say, well, they're not legitimate, they're not authentic, they're not real, um, because of they're lacking this particular kind of relationship with Islam, then we're also dismissing the authorities of these Muslim women who are participating in these Sufi communities, right? So I think this is where I'm very, um, it's, I think it's important as scholars, especially to be um, careful in our scholarship and our naming practices and labeling practices. Because if we do dismiss these communities, then I think, you know, stories like Simi and Aida's would be completely erased. And I'm, a, I'm sensitive to erasure because we're dealing, we know what erasure of historical um, voices looks like. We are kind of lacking things in an archive. So in some ways, in writing this chapter and writing, kind of allowing Simi and Aida's voices to really take over the chapter, I almost treated it as, as allowing their voices to be archived. I wanted to make sure that their stories are archived in a way that historically Sufi women's stories have not been archived. Yeah, that's great. Um, the, the book really is uh, such a cool project. And um, as you, you kind of say yourself, right, this is like a, an opening up an invitation to others. Um, you know, we really can, think of you as, uh, you know, somebody who is um, a founding mother in this, uh, this field. So uh, I, you know, this isn't something necessarily that you lay out very clearly in the book, but, um, you know, now with some distance, 
and doing this kind of work for a long time, I'm wondering what um, what you might think of or or kind of if you had a wish list of kind of the directions that others or, or yourself, but uh, where this kind of scholarship on Sufism in Canada might go, what are what are some of the important gaps that you feel like should be explored? That's such a great question. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I, I, I hope is that, you know, grad students and junior scholars who have the energy will also pick up the scholarship. Um, um, and I'm hoping that, uh, you know, interested grad students might come to be interested in working with me in the future. Uh, and so in writing this book, I often thought about that, that hopefully this is just a door opening and then people can walk through and do much more creative things with it. Um, I, I'm of two minds. The first one is that I really hope that people can do much more ethnographic work. And I know I'm totally biased in this regard. Um, I think there's just such a diversity of Sufi communities in Canada, but also such a diversity of uh, Sufi communities in the American context and the South American context that we, you know, some get a lot of the attention, others don't. And I know there's a lot of grad students who are coming up who are doing kind of this deep um, institutional ethnography, studying particular communities and doing focused analysis of them. And I think that's fabulous. And I hope that people do that in the Canadian context as well. Um, and I think I hope they move between boundaries. Like I hope they're not thinking that it only needs to be done within religious studies or Islamic studies, but it could also be done in so many different ways and uh, formulas. The other one is historical. Like I'm not an archivist and I'm not a historian, but I find as an ethnographer more and more, even with the current project that I'm working on, that I tend to go back into the classical because it's like a nice grounding, not you know, in the archives because it helps, you know, helps understand the contemporary. And in that vein, one of the things in uh, Islam in Canada, particularly that we've struggled with, and I try to do this, some some of this, and I, you know, um, doing work in the archives is hard because one, where what constitutes the archives, where is the archives, are things even archived, and what happens when there isn't kind of a, a repository to go look for things. Um, we don't know much of the historical context of early Muslims and namely uh, black Muslims who came to this country. Um, in chapter one, I am very intentional about naming that likely the first Sufis in the continent were individuals who were those who were forcibly enslaved and brought across the Atlantic. We know this about you know, American Islam now. But Canadian Islam is not good about that. And I think um, I did, you know, I named some people in chapter one of individuals, but I never went in and found things in the archive that were like saying explicitly, I'm a Sufi. And of course, you wouldn't expect that kind of naming, right? So I hope that people, and I've encouraged some of my own grad students also, I tell them, you know, start looking for these stories, start thinking about history in far more capacious ways and start really pushing the boundaries of what constitutes the archives. Um, and this may be that you're collecting oral stories from people, but, and I think this has a lot to do with how we think of religious studies in Canada and dare I say religious studies in, in the American context, but I think religious studies in Canada is a far, um, is, you know, is not um, as large as the American kind of sector. And so I, I hope, you know, kind of the incoming grad students and junior scholars are really going out there and kind of going out into archives as much as possible, but also going on the ground. And I end the book on this kind of note and say, really pushing the boundaries of what ethnographic work looks like, historical work looks like, or any type of work that looks like that really unsettles what we think of as religions in Canada, Islam in Canada, Sufism in Canada. That's great. Um, I hope I hope they do. I hope lots of people explore this more. I'm, I've always found the history of Muslims in Canada very very fascinating. So, um, you're you're doing cool work that's kind of um, not not directly in this context that you've been doing before. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what you're up to now? Or yeah, um, so. I'm, I'm finishing up an edited volume on Sufism Canada. So that hopefully should be out and it's kind of in the final stages. So that's kind of related to this. And this is coming out, I think I could say it now, uh, University of British Columbia Press. Um, and I'm doing that with the co-editor. Um, and now um, I'm starting a completely new project and I guess newish to some capacity. It's a project that I have been working on like loosely since my grad school days. Um, and I've gone back to Sri Lanka. Um, so I just spent a few 
uh, some of my sabbatical in Sri Lanka doing some field work. Um, and so this project is really at the starting stages. I've written a couple of things about uh, Sufism in Sri Lanka, but I'm kind of back to the drawing board, reading a lot these days um, and hoping that the next project, which will probably take me a time, there'll be a few that'll keep me busy for the next little while. I'm thinking a lot about Sufi shrines in Sri Lanka. Um, and I'm thinking, again, kind of as a continuity of some of my conceptual work and theoretical work and methodological work, I guess, really um, using kind of material culture, particularly Sufi shrines and hagiographies of saints to map Sufism, essentially. It's, it's the thing that, you know, makes it a little bit more tangible for me. Um, again, there isn't, a, there's some scholarship on Sufism in Sri Lanka, but um, similar to kind of the Canadian context, there isn't a book or anything like that. And I'm trying to figure out how to do this, but for anybody who knows kind of the Sri Lankan context or maybe knows South Asia more broadly, um, the geopolitics are a little bit complicated. Sri Lanka is a Buddhist majority state and there's some kind of complicated nationalisms that are unfolding and also gone through a civil war and all of these other things, which make the comp project a little bit complicated. Um, so I don't know how it's going to look like, but I'm... I'm excited. Yeah, it's nice to start a project and see, kind of submit to the fact that who knows where it will go at this point. But yeah, that's what that's what's keeping me busy these days. Or maybe that's not great. busy, but should be keeping me busy. <laughs> well, good luck. Um, and thanks for sharing uh, about this wonderful book. Congrats on uh, on this one. Thanks so much, Christian. Thanks for having me and for the delightful conversation. I super appreciate it. That was my conversation with Shobana Xavier about the dervishes of the North, Rumi, Whirling, and the Making of Sufism in Canada, published with the University of Toronto Press in 2023. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.